Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, the church, and the culture. My name is Derek Shmaui. I'm joined uh, by part of the cast and crew, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson, who uh, are not only regular regular uh, members of the podcast, but actually are special guests as well um, on this <laughs> on the, today's edition of Mere Fidelity. Uh, we wanted to talk today. You guys have a book called. Echoes of Echoes of the Exodus, or what? Give me the exact title. You guys know. So it's Echoes of Exodus, and then I think the subtitle is Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. Is that right, Alistair? I, the subtitle escapes yeah. me for a moment momentarily. But I, I think, think that's, that's right. correct. Yeah. So the reason I'm mildly confused is because I'm staring at another book, but nearly the same title by IVP uh, Echoes of Exodus Tracing a Biblical Motif by uh, a chap named Brian Estelle so we were laughing just before getting on that um, just make sure if you're looking for Andrew and Alistair's book um, it's the Crossway one and so that that's a different one uh, it's a different one so anyways um, <laughs> now that I've plugged somebody else's book at the beginning of your episode uh, guys what's um What's the deal with the book? What's the give me give me the give me the two second elevator pitch of what you're doing with this book, uh, Andrew? Why don't you do that? You're just you're the pithy one. Yeah. So I so I I bet this is my pitch for the book is that the book would do for other people what reading Alistair's stuff and others has done for me in illuminating the way that the Exodus appears again and again and again in Scripture, and that the whole Bible is in a way variations on the theme that's set up in the Exodus story. Um, I came across that through Alistair's uh, a series of blogs that he'd written, and I just could not believe how many ways in which the ec- the Exodus is uh, echoed or refracted or whatever image you want to use through the book of Genesis, through the prophets, through obviously the Gospels, through Paul, through Revelation. I just hadn't I hadn't really seen it. I'd seen a few of them, but I just hadn't seen the depth and the ways in which the the basic outline of the Exodus story appears again and again. And it both really opened my eyes to the interconnectedness of scripture and gave me a much richer vision of the biblical narrative. But it also really helped me understand the gospel from another perspective as well. And I think brought themes into the fore, which in my reading of the gospel initially would not have been so central. And I, on reading all of his, these essays and articles he'd written, I said, Hey, I'd love to turn this into a popular level book that we could get kind of an ordinary folk to read that that would really help them see what you've helped me see. And he said, okay, go for it. So it's sort of the ideas and content is basically Alistair's and the writing and prose of it is basically mine. And we've chipped into each other's here and there, but that's basically the gist. And it is, yeah, I, I just found it so illuminating to learn from, and I'm hoping that that will be shared by anyone who reads the book. So that's the pitch. It's a long elevator. Like sorry. It. it was, it was an elevator in a very tall building. We were in New York. That's fine. Um, that's fine. Uh, so when it comes to let's break down that idea of echoes, echoes of echoes of the Exodus. I mean, what are we? What are you guys looking at there? I mean, g- give me the concept of an echo, and then and then give me a couple of obvious as well as surprising examples. So a couple of obvious quotes that you're going to deal with or, or uh, text, but then but then some of the things that will surprise maybe surprise readers. And uh, yeah, so uh, Alistair, why don't you hit that? Yes, an echo is a, an occasion where we see um, text where there are where the voice of another text is present. And so, if you read, it's probably best to give some examples of it. 
Um, so if you're reading the story of Abraham, Abraham's been called, he's left Ur of the Chaldees, and then after a while there's a famine in the land and he goes into Egypt. And in Egypt, Sarah is taken by Pharaoh, then Pharaoh is plagued, and after a series of plagues, Pharaoh discovers that Sarah is Abraham's wife, and they're sent away with many gifts. They go into the land, there's a battle within the land to rescue Lot, and then there's a victory. And so within that story, you can recognise a pattern. This isn't a story that is com completely unfamiliar to us. Now, we may have read it in Genesis, but we've also read it in Exodus. It's a similar pattern that is being played out. And so the echo, or um, an anticipation in this case, of the Exodus narrative is found within that text. And so we have these sorts of things on many occasions in Scripture, where there is a text that is telling us a story, but within that story we can hear the whispers of previous stories, or stories yet to come on some occasions. So you read, for instance, in John's Gospel, Jesus goes out um, into the wilderness, crosses the Sea of Tiberias, and is followed by a great multitude into the wilderness, where he feeds them miraculously with bread, and then goes up onto a mountain and teaches them. And again, we've, we recognise that pattern, we've heard it before, and so... The author, in that case, it's a, in part it's a literary device and it's also a means by which we can recognise the unity of the biblical text, that these aren't just isolated stories but there is a, a sort of musical connection between them whereby texts that would otherwise just be isolated events within history are seen to be part of a great divine symphony. And so this is part of what we're trying to do within the book, not so much give a theory of e echoes or of um, metalepsis and all these sorts of themes that people like Richard Hayes get into that a bit in, in their work, the more technical sides. But the aim of the book is to give you a sense of what this looks like in practice. Lots of different examples throughout the biblical text, following the biblical narrative and showing how these themes repeat and recur in ways that vary and which deepen and which expand. And then when we come to the story of Christ and the church, how, as it were, they crash on these great shores of redemption and lead us to understand what is taking place on a far greater level than we would have otherwise. So here's an example, Derek, of, of, a, of a surprising one, or one that was surprising for me, that I can't, still can't quite believe I have ended up writing, because I have used it as a case study of bad hermeneutics for about 10 years. And Alistair has convinced me that it's actually legitimate. Um, and so I've written about it, but it, it, so at face value, this sounds like a really silly example to me. So Rahab's scarlet cord, okay, which I would use as an example of this is just bad. Like it, that's, somebody's seen the color red and gone, that must be the blood of Jesus. What a load of nonsense, because at a very nuanced, unnuanced flat level, there's no obvious reason why something being red should necessarily lead to it being the blood of Jesus. And it just struck me as rather silly. And I'd use that example genuinely in teaching hermeneutics to pastors and so on. That's an extreme form of typology everywhere kind of view. And I didn't really give it much thought. I just waved it away. And then 
in thinking through the lens of the Exodus, you see what then happens is you you read the Joshua story, having the conquest of Canaan story, having just read the Exodus story, and you realise that this isn't by no means simply the colour red is the connection, because what's happening, of course, it's not necessarily pointing forwards at this point, it's pointing backwards to the Exodus, that here you have somebody who the entire city that they're in is about to be destroyed as a result of ungodliness, and uh, there's going to be, effect, you know, the sort of the, the city is going to fall and people are going to escape, and sometimes even people who are um, outsiders to the people of Israel are going to escape and be freed as well, because they're going to take refuge under Israel's God, and then there's going to be something hanging in the across the sort of lintel of the house, window door, that's red as a way of saying, please protect me when the day of judgment comes so that the destroyer doesn't take me down with them and instead I'm able to go free. And you do that and then you think, oh, so actually the Exodus story is being echoed in the Rahab story. And then with the Exodus in mind, you, of course, make the connection between Passover and the cross. So it's, it's to me, that was a surprise. I just had never seen that kind. Of, now, obviously, that's a pretty obscure one. And most of the book isn't like that. But to me, that's a good example of the really kind of, oh, I hadn't seen those connections at all. And it's opened up, not just for the fun of it, but a lot of parts of scripture I just wouldn't do that with. And in many ways, when we're talking about echoes, echoes can have different different a different strength. So there are some echoes that are very prominent and foregrounded within the text. So for instance, the Passover themes around the time of the death of Christ, those are foregrounded, those themes. Whereas on other occasions, they're in the background and sometimes you're not sure, are they really there? Um, you're listening carefully and there are hints of them. And then sometimes they come more prominently and you think, no, this isn't something I'm just hearing. It is really there. But a lot of this is about recognising the musical character of scripture more generally. There's a, lo a lot of this, a lot of a lot of uh, recognition of echoes and allusions and texts. One of those things that drive home, I took a class on this last uh, semester, was just the reality that uh, if you're not familiar uh, at a depth level with the Old Testament in a lot of ways, um, you're just not picking it up. Like that, just that the the musical the musical dimension, uh, the musical metaphor of recognizing little notes here and there, uh, recognizing three or four notes that follow a theme that you listen to as a child and then you realize, oh, that, that theme is actually being picked up again over here in this song. Uh, the same thing's happening in scripture. And so um, I'm wondering how much your book, how much of that are you displaying? Just thinking for readers, are you jumping back and forth really quickly or are you kind of trying to lay out uh, very, I don't know, slowly put it. Uh, how, are you putting it on the, on the bottom shelf for people or uh, if they're, if they're new to this sort of thing or, or is this like a, all right, you've kind of been through seminary once and now you're trying to go. Oh, no, I, I, so I, I don't, I can't, I, I think Alistair in some ways, Alistair and I wrote the things that we've written at slightly different levels. So I think Alistair was writing for his blogger audience, which is mostly all people who are already quite, aware of intertextuality and the connection between the testaments and he's he's writing for people i suppose like the kinds of people that we would be working for writing for or talking for on this show so people whose biblical literacy is pretty high i think that's what was originally written but i the reason i wanted to write a book out of it instead of just saying hey point people to alistair's blog is because i thought i think this is the kind of insight that can and should be shared with a whole load of people who wouldn't 
particularly even listen to this show, I suspect, but certainly wouldn't necessarily go on my blog or Alice's blog and read in depth about these themes, but really could be open, have their eyes open to them, and it could illuminate the way that they read the whole Bible. And this would be something, it could be a sort of, you could use it in a devotional way. And um, yeah. And I'm trusting that people will. So I, I don't mean that in a sort of, you know, here's two paragraphs of thought for today. But I mean, a devotional in the sense of this is a book you could work through. And in doing it, it would really illuminate your your walk with God and, and help you find joy and help you see the Bible in a new way. So I think that was my motive. But obviously, that's not what Alistair had originally written. So in a sense, there's you. I guess you get both of those audiences reflected in the book as it stands, I would think. Each chapter is very short as well and has questions following, com- questions for comprehension and some for thought that would make it very suitable for a study group or something like that. Oh, good. Um, what, one thing, I, I'm curious what you guys, I guess I, I'll, I'll ask Andrew this because you're the one registra- registering the most surprise in the experience. Um, so I've been going through the Psalms recently in the morning and it is funny to just recognize over and over again how often the the exodus recurs in the psalms both explicitly as well as implicitly at times um but the the different ways that it's used right so it's not just um you know you you have the pair of psalm 105 and 106 uh where psalm 105 recounts the exodus and it's this triumphant uh, remembrance of God's faithfulness and so on and so forth. Yay! Psalm 106, the Exodus is recounted uh, in many ways, and it's this remember. And remember how you guys were dragging your feet and being awful, ridiculous idolaters the entire time, and that's what you still are. <laughs> like the 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 use of both aspects of it. Um, it's not just a single. It's not just a single note use in that sense. And to continue the musical analogy, I'm curious what stood out to you in, um, in that regard themes that really, a couple of themes that surprised you that the rest of scripture picked up on whether Paul or, um, or other, other old Testament, because the echoes don't just occur in the new Testament. They occur in the old Testament. The old Testament's picking up. Oh, totally. In fact, most of the book is, is, more of the book is about focus on the Old Testament. Sorry, Alice, are you going to so go curious. I want to jump in ahead. No, go ahead. No, Andrew, I'm, a- I'm asking you, Andrew, because you were the one that yeah. was registering the, well, the surprise. Well, okay, so I, I found um, – so uh, there were some themes I was I was very familiar with because of my own sort of work on Paul. So, you know, the sort of use of – the one that you've just alluded to, the use of the Exodus story as warning is something I'd first went into in some detail in my master's thesis, like – 15 years ago so I'd, some of these themes are things where i've gone okay that that's a clear example of you know jude and hebrews and one corinthians or use this story for that and psalm 95 and so on so some of them are very clear but there were others where i just i think partly uh, through alistair's influence and some of the people who've influenced him so the sort of james jordan peter lightheart kind of crowd who i guess I would not, from my kind of Christianity, for many years, have seen any sacramental significance to a story like the Exodus. Not, I mean, obviously, you've seen it within Israel's own worshipping life, but not the, the extent and depth of the typological resonances of the Exodus story in both baptism and the Lord's Supper are a bit, sort of very significant. And you can see that explicitly pointed out in 1 Corinthians 10, but it's not something that I would have gone to town on, even though I'd known it was there. And then from there, I probably also... And this reflects a more charismatic reading of the story, but also seeing the the sort of temporary wilderness states of the contemporary church in the age of the spirit where God is providing gifts from the sky that he 
gives you now, as in you're in the wilderness period as the church, but you didn't need them in Egypt because you weren't redeemed yet, and you won't need them in Canaan because the land will be flowing with milk and honey. But for now, you need these surprising supernatural gifts which are given to you. So I, I would I read even read it in a kind of charismatic way as well as a sacramental way, neither of which I went into this project with any sort of inkling of as far, other than what was plainly there in the text uh, in 1 Corinthians. I just hadn't seen the depth in which that worked. So, so I think that was probably quite... Quite a significant one you, for me. A you charismatic way? Is that what, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I was, no, because I think to try and mash two of my books this year into one sentence would really have been a little lame. But genuinely, that was that was uh, a real... It was. And the two... Because I'm working on those two projects. charismatic echoes each other. of the Exodus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, well, I knew I was, was going to get some sort of snark for that. But, but it, it really... It was the work on the Exodus thing in some ways that helped me see some of the ways in which that theme... Is is present no, that, that, from a more that's way, actually which really interested me. No, that's very interesting, especially when you consider the fact that um, they're gifts that are given. They're gifts that are given in the wilderness, but they're also gifts that are given in preparation for um, taking Canaan, uh, taking you know the conquest of 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 the promised land and receiving the inheritance. And um, these are still the divine empowerments by which uh, the church is called to in the present moment to continue to move forward uh, into the world of promise um, and and receive the inheritance but more in the inheritance of peoples and so that, that that's yeah that's extremely illuminating when you start having uh, start putting some of the pieces together in new ways um, Alistair you've been silent I mean you you wrote you wrote the original you wrote the original um, kind of notes for this sort of for this thing and you Yep. Seeing them condensed now into a different form, did your thought develop in the rewrite of the of of this, so to speak, in the rewrite of the material? A lot of it was new because for the original series, it was started off as a Lenten project that I set for myself, and it, the design of the project was to be forty days of Exodus, forty different reflections upon um, particular uses of Exodus themes within Scripture, and I got to twenty one, I think it was, and then didn't finish it off. I had lots of notes for um, future sections, but I never actually put them all together. But so what you're saying is people project, can't just go to the blog wrote, and get it all. No, it's not all there. <laughs> there we go. So there we go. What I did was expanded on those considerably um, and added from, I think it ended at the battle of Aphek with um, the ark captured, taken into the land of the Philistines, plagues and all these sorts of things until the ark is sent back with gifts into the land. And so it was, that story was the last one that I reflected upon within the old Testament. And that took me up to 21. I didn't get into David. I didn't get into the story of Solomon or into the prophets or the Psalms or any of these other things. And so, and they also skipped a number of things because there is so much material. And once you start to look at it more carefully, you realize that this is a theme that is throughout the biblical text. And we tend to miss it in many places where it exists. And when you are alert to it, you'll see it in places that you may not have been thinking about. So, for instance, I mentioned it in a post recently, the story of Deborah and the significance of um themes of Exodus there. So for instance, the great victory that occurs over an army with chariots with an unrush of water followed by a victory song. Now, when you see it and you start to pick some of the other details of the story and see the connections, 
you realise it's very significant. But we've read that story many times without actually registering the connections. So what I wanted to do was to alert people to some of these connections. And also, I think when we read the Bible and we talk about typology, often we think about this relationship between the Old and New Testament, with the Old Testament being a picture of what's to come in the New but one of the things you notice as you go through a project like this is that the Old Testament is con constantly echoing itself. Um, and so within the Old Testament itself, there's always these, these themes develop and there's a sense of energy within this theme. So the prophets can refer to the theme of Exodus as something that is charged with promise that this event that has happened in the past is something that they can grasp hold of as they look forward to the future. It's a statement, as it were, of divine intent that um, lays out what God will accomplish in the future, a new second exodus greater than the first. And so when we read the biblical story, it is not just two distinct parts that are connected to each other or continuous, but have a sort of... Um, oppositional relationship with one being a symbol of something yet to purely a symbol of something yet to come what we see instead is a very continuous narrative of divine redemption where god always has this purpose in mind and he leaves these hints as it were within the narrative that this is where the story is heading and then when you actually come to christ and you see the story of the gospels you have this feeling of deep familiarity and recognition. I've heard this story before. This bears all the marks of the author of the old, of the one who orchestrated the events of the Old Testament. This isn't something new, but it is the culmination of everything that has gone before. And so there's a recognition that occurs both ways. There's the recognition of Christ in the light of all that has gone before. And then there's the recognition of all that has gone before in the light of Christ. Suddenly, it becomes clear what's taking place in a way that it's not when you're just reading those stories in themselves. And so echoes enable us to interpret stories in a deeper way than we would otherwise. One thing that strikes me in all this is it really, really reinforces your uh, sense of the divine faithfulness and the divine consistency. Um, people talk about immutability, divine immutability, and God's unchangeability as this static Greek, you know, frozen divinity that is really overlaid off of, on scripture from uh, a couple of different proof texts and so on and so forth. But one of the interesting things is reading, reading scripture typologically and seeing the typological unity of scriptures, seeing, seeing the consistency and the, um, the, the rolling echoes, the rolling, um, development of God's redemptive work that starts with a search of the particular pattern and theme and then just keeps developing it keeps going you know all the way from abraham and even before that you know noah and so on and so forth all the way forward to christ um it really reinforces that this is the same god who works uh even in surprising and new ways that are total that are that are consistent and that are a continuous development of what he has always been doing so um it's almost like, I don't know, for me, I mean, maybe I'm just being too systematic here, but um, when I read about, when I read about these, these echoes and these consistencies and, and, uh, and this unity of God's work in scripture, I think of just the unity and the consistency and the immutability and providential ordering 
of history of God. It's one of those things that, that um, uh, it's not just creative riffs or, or like, it's not just, uh, it's not just saves, so to speak of, of things that are going right to the left and to the, to the right. Um, there is a, there's an order and a pattern that speaks to, um, a wise sovereign providential ordering of things. So I don't, I don't know if that's for you, but this, my experience with, with reading these sorts of things, it, it uh, without a particular proof text of God is the sovereign, yeah. immutable, et cetera, God, it's just, it's the overall weight of it. It is amazing how many uh, incidents, or to me again, studying the, studying the theme, and this isn't so much a plug for the book, it's just a plug for the theme as, as a whole, how many sort of um, kind of payoffs there are to doing this kind of study. Because So you have the one you've just said there, you're basically seeing, hang on a second, if you're going to take the text at face value, which obviously I do, you're going to see the Lord God has, has worked that kind of, has orchestrated that circumstance and that one and that one and that one is all in a line. And a, a number of these are ways in which the narrator has told a story to emphasize themes, but you can't emphasize themes that aren't there at all. And so the events of, that stand behind these things and the ways in which God orchestrates history uh, is you know, just got a massive vision of divine sovereignty. So that, that that's one sort of surprising benefit of doing that kind of study. Another one is you, I realize, and I think it, even all three of us have been in some ways involved in debates over the last, I guess, five or 10 years since we've been online, really, um, with a, a sort of a variety of Christianity that would almost try and screen out any kind of, um, you know, divine violence or God acting as sort of judge and wrathful and that sort of thing into a much more sort of softer pastel colored picture. And again, when you realize how central the Exodus is, not just to the Exodus story and the and the Torah, but how central it is to the entire Bible and how many texts draw on the fact that the Exodus happened and draw on the what it reveals about God and his judgment of evil and his overthrow of the devil as a way of describing what God is, has done in Christ or as a way of God, describing what God will do in the end. And you, you think, actually, I, I cannot remove the historicity of Obviously, we could debate about dates and about archaeological legacy and all that sort of stuff of the Exodus. But the fact that this event, as described in Scripture, actually took place and reveals what it does about God, as claimed by the writer, is of enormous significance to biblical theology. And you can't amputate it without destroying almost everything else. And and so there are a number of things like that where you feel like... I mean, I, I, and just, I'll just throw one more, a sort of practical as a pastor. I just find how the Exodus um, navigates. It sort of gives you a very, very strong liberation. I don't mean liberation theology, capital L, capital T, but of, although maybe, um, but a very strong theology of liberation and freedom from oppression and from injustice and from imperial power, which is a quite a sort of lefty concern, along with a very, very strong theology of needing to be liberated not only from the external power, but also from your own idolatry and your own self-worship and golden calves and grumbling in the desert and lack of faith and all those things, which would be more conservative concerns. And the Exodus story bundles them all together in a way that says you, you really cannot embrace this bit of the of the gospel without embracing that but as well it, it's got relevance for atonement theology in terms of its victory redemption substitution all these things so there's so many ways in which doing a detailed study of the exodus really helps with a lot of contemporary discussions within christianity about the nature of the gospel the nature of the word of god the nature of god himself and so on so that those are just a few teasers i suppose but that for me was one of the great benefits of doing the study in some detail and one of the things we're trying to achieve with the book is to give weight to 
give weight to theological themes related to typology. Many people, when they look at typology, they see it as maybe like God's flannel graph in the Old Testament showing pictures of what he's going to do in the, in the future, or maybe some sort of, or in other cases, it's a sort of literary flourish on the part of the authors to try and create connections that don't really exist. But what we were trying to show is that these typological patterns bear real theological weight. So the Exodus is the great event in the Old Testament where God reveals his identity. He gives his name to um he gives his name to Moses to declare to the people of Israel. He reveals himself in the burning bush and at Sinai. And in all these events of deliverance, God proves his power over the gods of the Egyptians, his power over is against Israel's sin and his faithfulness and his goodness and his um, reliability that he, he is the covenant God who keeps his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And in all of these things, we see theological weight of God's identity being proved. And that is something that the theme of Exodus carries on, that the Exodus is in some sense it is a theme that bears the hallmarks of God's action and of God's identity. It's also something that bears theological weight within the life of the church, that we are an exodus people. We are formed by Christ's great exodus, and um, delivering us from sin and from Satan and bringing us into the king his kingdom. And as we read this story, as we and as we celebrate the um, sacraments, which are based upon Passover, the crossing of the water, all these sorts of things, we become part of this story. And so the typology is not merely a literary flourish, nor is it just um, some nice picture of what God, God's going to do in the future, some example of something yet to come. It is something that discloses our deep unity with the people of the Exodus. It's something that discloses the deep unity of God's purpose and the deep consistency of God's character. Um, that God is the God who has revealed himself in this event, and the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ is that same God acting within history. Which which speaks to the um the issue of of the theological interpretation of the actual authors of the Old Testament, of, of Old Testament scripture in itself, the way I, I'm curious if you guys want to comment on this is this is this is a pet peeve, uh, a pet issue of mine. Um, there are ways that I that I'm seeing people try to affirm some of the Old Testament, but not all of the Old Testament, through um, really amped up doctrines of accommodation. And so, okay, yeah, that, some of those things happen, but, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament writers, uh, they did not have Christ, we do. And so we, we kind of, kind of see through the Old Testament, uh, theological descriptions, uh, through to what really happened, so to speak, and then, and then interpret what really happened in light of what we know about Christ now, so on and so forth. I think what, what's, what I struggle with there is, um, the theological, formation of the text, the theological interpretation of the text is so caught up with the description of the events and the reality and the weight of the events that, um, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering because how much of that gets carried forward? Like how, how often do you see in the new Testament, the development of a theme in a way that, uh, subverts it, so to speak. 
uh, that's, that's the claim is that so often the new Testament authors are taking old Testament events or old Testament texts and, uh, not just developing it or not just saying, Oh, look, it's happening, but in a new different way because different part of the covenantal history, but it's like, actually, actually it's happening in a very different way that, that the the character, the character of God's activity, um, if they'd have known better, they would have seen kind of thing. Like, so, so an actual subversion of some of the ways that God did things before you thought God did things before, but we're actually seeing now, uh, like the conquest or like the, or really just, I would say the divine acts of, of, of punishment, the plagues, things like that. So how, how I'm, I'm front loading that question, but are you telling us how would I make a good case for something that I don't believe? Is that, <laughs> that sounds like that's what the question is. Well, I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering like, like how much of this is after reading this, put it that, put it the way of, of uh, how much more unconvincing is that sort of position, so to speak? Like how often have you seen those sorts of, well, Jesus was, you know, subverting those kinds of texts and now you're, you're you just work through the material and you're thinking that that just that can't work with how this text in the Gospels invokes the Exodus or how Paul invokes the judgment of God in like First Corinthians ten or something like that. Um, I think one of the things that you see is it's it's very much like a lot of different sticks being held together, and as they're connected together and um, or maybe like the weight that many different roots can bear when it comes to a tree. Now, each one of those roots taken by themselves could be snapped or um, cut off fairly easily. But when they're all together, they have a cumulative strength that is not easily uprooted or um, opposed. And I think this is very much what you see as you recognise the deep connections within Scripture and these thematic unities. And so... It makes the case a lot harder because what you have no lo- you no longer have a lot of isolated texts that you can deal with one each one by themselves and um, deconstruct a case piecemeal. Rather, you have to deal with these things in their cumulative force, and I think that's one of the things that typology and recognizing the unifying and galvanizing power of a theme um, can give to us in dealing with those sorts of cases. Um, that's helpful. That's helpful. I, let me ask you guys. Um, well, a- Andrew, you're the practitioner um, in this regard, so I'll ask you: uh, How has this just impacted? I've never let uh, a, I've never led a people out of slavery. I should just qualify just before people think okay. I'm, a <laughs> I'm charismatic, but I'm not that charismatic. So. <laughs> oh man, no, uh, no, not going to go there. Um, uh, no, but really, when it comes to uh, your preaching, mm. uh, I'll just. Uh, I'll just ask. Well, I like, have – so this is – I mean, this has been a, a wonderful – I was going to say payback for me. I, I um, We preached through Genesis in my church in London last summer. And in fact, we preached through – I preached through Genesis twice in two different churches last year because it happened that the two churches I serve as uh, on the preaching team had both were going through Genesis. So I ended up – you know, the, the way that you do the story of Lot, which until – to be honest, Lot's a bit of a strange – I think often Lot is a bit of a weird story. The story of the destruction of Sodom is not a pleasant read, and it's a bit hard to know quite what to do with this character. And it would be a great example of a story where you not only find um, Exodus resonances, but through the... And this is, I guess, the the thing I'm saying about the payback of doing this study is that through the Exodus, you get gospel 
payoff, if I can put it as as in a sort of mercantile image like that, for and from all sorts of texts that without the Exodus, you might not see any connection to Christ. So I think it's difficult to read Genesis 19, the destruction of Sodom, and immediately go, oh, well, this is where Jesus fits in. But I think when you read Genesis, just as one example, this is just, I'd preached this text twice last year. When you read Genesis 19 and you think, oh, hang on a second, so we have angels, we have a plague, we have a promise of judgment, we have a doorpost that people retreat behind and go into the house and hide and then get led out of a city by the angel in order to go to freedom. And then and one of them turns back. A midnight meal of unleavened bread. A midnight meal of unleavened bread. And then one of them, this is basically how our editing process worked. I wrote something and then Alistair chipped in a thing like that. And I'm like, yeah, I've missed that one as well. There's just so many resonances. And one of them turns back and turns into a pillar of salt. The other one presses onto the, you know, onto the future where they were going to go. And you think, oh, this is a massive extra story. And then through that lens, you begin to say, oh, right. So now Lot is represents like the people of Israel who in spite of their own unbelief is going to be led out of the land but some of them are going to turn back and end up being judged and some of them are going to press on and actually the Christ figure in the story in some ways is Abraham who's up on the mountainside praying that the judge of all the earth will do what's right and liberate his people on behalf of his faithfulness to the covenant rather than theirs and you just the entire story opens up gospel application which I don't think I would have seen had I not gone through the exodus lens and it might be that a lot of people do that anyway they don't need it but for me that was hugely illuminating and it's made gospel preaching much easier to me from a whole host of Old Testament texts. Well, and it actually kind of illuminates the weirdness with Lot's daughters when you think about it, because, I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole thing about Lot's daughters, uh, we, need, we need to get progeny for ourselves in order to, get the, to fulfill the promise ourselves, and, and, it, and it just ends up into, like, weird, debased, um, incestuous fallout and you kind of get a picture of uh, the the misfires of Israel in the desert in the wilderness where they often try uh, in their own strength I mean I actually think of them trying to conquer the land and go in the land themselves and having that backfire pretty 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 badly or or it could be uh, with the incident with the Baal Peor and the and the temptation of, of, of absolutely uh, pagan worship and idolatrous worship and so you, you get this salvation out of destruction. And, and, and at the same time, like the people who are saved out of it are still the people. Like it's the, the problem isn't always external is that they carried, they carried Canaan with them, you know, in their flesh, so to speak. And that's what they need. That's also what they need to get saved from. That only comes, you know, that only comes with Christ uh, and the gift of the spirit eventually. Um, that is fascinating. That's uh Wow, that's that's how I'll preach that if I have to preach that now. Uh, um, and it, if I our get work here is done. That, <laughs> yeah, they're good. Um, well, hey guys, I think this is a great note to kind of end on. Um, lots of daughters, and uh, uh, but but uh, this sounds Says no like, one like, ever. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, this is uh, guys. Um, this sounds like a great project. I'm really excited to get my hands on it and uh, work through the material. Uh, dear listeners, if you are looking where to find this, you can probably, is, is the product page up on Amazon yet? Or um, yeah, I know Crossway. Okay, so you can go to Amazon, pre-order, uh, go to Crossway, same deal. Um, you're really going to want to get some of this material if you're if any of what uh, we went into this this episode um, stimulated your mind and your thoughts about scripture. The great thing, I'll just add one thing. Um, earlier we talked about the way that this can, uh, these kinds of texts often um, assume our knowledge of scripture, but the, the wonderful thing about texts like this that give you 
a framework is it it's a it's like a shortcut it's a shortcut into all this research all this work that opens up opens up just wide doorways into parts of scripture that may seem dark and opaque and i know that many times we're actually scared of scripture because we don't have a guide and so when you have these these illuminating frameworks um it just opens up a new world so really pick it up and uh uh, or don't. It's fine. It's fine. We'll let you listen to us anyways. Uh, but <laughs> thanks for listening uh, and take care. Until next time. Mm-hmm.